The Quarantine Conversations mini podcast series aims to show what it's like to be an earth, ocean, or atmospheric scientist. There's a lot of diversity under that umbrella, and not all of our scientists wear lab coats. Today we're talking to Lisa Buckley, a paleontologist. In this series, we aim to meet uh, people at various stages in their scientific studies. So what would you consider yourself to be? A student, a teacher, a hobbyist, a researcher? I am a researcher. I received my PhD back in 2016. So uh, I've gone through the grad student stage of my life. So that's over, thankfully, because that was a long, long haul. <laughs> <laughs> At, at the moment, I'm an independent ichnologist and paleontologist. So this means that at the moment, I'm working from contract job to contract job. And those jobs are pretty varied right now. My most recent contract was working actually with the BD Biodiversity Museum to collect video footage for an interactive display project that showcases what it's like to live the life of a field paleontologist. and uh, So kind of like a day in the life of. Oh, that's exciting. And you said you're an ichthologist? An ichnologist, yeah. Ich it, it can be easily confused with the uh, ichthyologist. People hear ich and they think, oh, fish, that's what you study. But uh, ichnology is the study of tracks and footprints and traces that, oh, that the animals leave on their environment. That's super it's, exciting. Yeah, basically if an animal does something that physically alters its environment, like make a footprint, dig a hole, build a nest, chomp on a bone, that leaves a mark for paleontologists like me and other ichnologists to study. So that's really cool. Great. Uh, how did you get into this field? Oh, I knew I wanted to be a paleontologist from like a really early age. My great aunt Molly, uh, she's no longer with us, but she was a huge influence on my life. She always wanted to study natural history and archaeology, but she never had a chance to. She grew up during the Depression, so that's where her formative years were. Mm. And we're, we're a little bit hazy as to whether she actually finished high school before she had to go out and get a job to support her family. And she worked as a telephone operator for many years. And so she was basically using the old, you know, the operator physically had to connect you with the line. So the old uh, pull out and push in pins that the uh, telephone operators used to do, it was all physical back then. So it was a really cool job. <laughs> the, she was always an avid reader of popular paleontology and archaeology books. And as soon as I was old enough to uh, understand words and, you know, pay attention to things, so, you know, before kindergarten, she would read to me from these books and show me the pictures. And I must have asked one day, how do we know what these things look like? You know, as much as a little preschool kid could gabble at that point. Mm -hmm. And she said something along the lines of, well, there's people who look for these things and study them and they're called paleontologists and I was like oh yeah yeah that's it that's what I want to do <laughs> there it is I had my career picked out before kindergarten which was really frustrating for a lot of my teachers <laughs> <laughs> well it's good you, you had drive <laughs> I had drive yeah and I got into ichnology specifically through my colleague Dr. Rick McRae 
Uh, I worked for him as a uh, excavation coordinator back in 2003 in uh, northern British Columbia on British Columbia's first dinosaur excavation. And up until that point, I had started grad studies, but I hadn't really settled on a research focus, like what I was going to really do. And he introduced me to the world of fossilized footprints. And I was like, oh, this is, this is so cool. This is, you know, we can find footprints of, you know, million year old dinosaurs wandering around and then I found out about bird footprints and I've always been a bird nerd and the fact that I could follow the tracks of early Cretaceous birds and learn more about them I was like oh there it is that's it (laughs) (laughs) it's hard to turn that down (laughs) oh it, it really is it's just it's so it's like uh it's like a little cold case file every trackway it's like a little you know a little forensics file where you're trying to piece together as much information as you possibly can just from a trackway and trying to figure out all right what was going on here what am i looking at uh, everyone's a, a puzzle and a mystery and it's exciting <laughs> it's like being a detective it really is except that all of your evidence has been left out in the rain for like a hundred million years and you have to try and put the case together. It's, yeah, it, it can be challenging. Speaking of which, have you ever solved anything really cool or made any really interesting discoveries? Oh, I think the one that I'm most proud of uh, was uh, something that uh, myself and my colleagues, like we are, science is such a collaborative field and you're always working with other people. So me, myself, personally, uh, none of the discoveries that I've made could have been done without collaboration with my uh, fellow footprint colleagues. So uh, that's always important to say. You're always, uh, you know, all those team projects that you're made to work on when you're in school. Yeah, there's a reason for that, (laughs) As, as trying as they might be at the time, because that's basically what science is. It's a big team project. But one of the papers that I was uh, lead on, we were looking at these fossil 100 million year old, well about 115 million year old fossil footprints of these small three-toed animals that were first described as footprints of little meat-eating dinosaurs. But then we were looking at them and they looked awfully birdy, like there was just some birdy features to them. And there was actually like a debate broke out on the track site in China, in Chongqing, China, about whether these were small meat-eating dinosaurs or the footprints of large wading birds, like something like the size of a sandhill crane. Mm. And so it's like, huh, okay, how do we figure this out? And I'm a bird nerd, but I'm not a math nerd. And it turned out that math was key to solving this problem. So I taught myself multivariate statistical analyses and oh yeah yeah it sounds it's basically just like taking a whole bunch of variables putting them together and seeing what the patterns show you and so what I did was take data from fossil meat like definite meat-eating dinosaur footprints data from footprints that we knew for sure were birds because they were footprints that were made after dinosaurs, the non-avian dinosaurs went extinct. And then the data from these Chinese footprints. 
plugged them into the analyses, and lo and behold, the pattern just screamed out at me, yeah, these are birds. These things have the same kind of foot shape as a bird. They're moving their feet and legs the same way as a bird. There's no way that these things are moving like a non-avian dinosaur. So I was like, yeah, that's excellent, because back in the early Cretaceous, this is birds start making their appearance in the fossil record middle jurassic and those birds are pretty dinosaur looking like if you took the feathers off you mm -hmm. would think oh yeah that's that's just a dinosaur whatever and so the overlap between how birds are shaped and especially feet how their feet are shaped for birds and early cretaceous dinosaurs the farther you go back in time the more similar they are Mm -hmm. So it gets really hard when you start getting into animals that are close to the same size and are spending a lot of time walking on the ground. Is that a bird or is it a meat-eating dinosaur? Because they share so many features. And being able to kind of figure that out lets us know, oh, you know what? Early Cretaceous bird diversity was pretty cool. We have small sandpiper-sized birds and these big sandhill crane-like birds walking around at the same time. So it's like, yeah, that's, that's amazing. What else are we going to find? <laughs> that's a really exciting discovery. And um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, not something we often think about, but it, it's, uh, it's a really good example of something a friend often says, which is that paleontology is a gateway science. Um, it, is. it lures you in and then gets you into other sciences like math or chemistry or uh, all these other things that you're, you're talking about. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's, uh, uh, my colleague, uh, Dr. McRae, we uh, also do uh, develop programming for uh, uh, K-12 through uh, uh, projects. And one of the best ways to get kids interested in math is to roll out a uh, copy of a dinosaur trackway. And before you know it, they're doing algebra, they're playing around with uh, some very, very rudimentary calculus. It's like, but just because you ask them the questions, okay, figure out how fast this animal's going, and here's the formula to do it. And then they collect the data, they take averages and, and uh, means and medians. Oh, they get into it, and they don't, and it's not like a boring math lesson. It's not like, you know, recite the multiplication table. Yawn, who wants to do that? You want to figure out something when you're doing math. That's why you do math. Yeah. <laughs> so um, what are you researching right now? Oh, right now, I'm, I have to admit, COVID has put a little bit of a damper on a couple of things, but I do have a paper that uh, I've been working on for, papers always take longer than you want them to, and this is no exception, but uh, in 2017, uh, I was part of a uh, research field trip out in South Korea looking at the uh, early Cretaceous bird footprints out there and dinosaur footprints as well. I was there specifically for birds. And it's really cool because the geology in South Korea in terms of what types of footprints are preserved is really similar in time to the geology that we have preserved in British Columbia for dinosaur footprints and bird footprints. And South Korea has the same kind of issue that British Columbia does in that the footprint, the fossilized footprint record is beautifully preserved. The bone record, not so much. You, you find some bone elements, but you definitely 
basically the bulk of what we know about dinosaurs from British Columbia and from South Korea comes from the footprint record. So there's uh, yeah, definitely a international uh, similarity there, which is really cool. So uh, one of the things that uh, we're working on right now are some footprints that we found during that 2017 uh, field trip. And uh, I found one of them. <laughs> It's really cool because I don't make that many discoveries like of bird footprints in the field. Like I've been studying these things since 2004. But it was only in 2017 that I actually found one out in the wild. I'm like, yeah, that took a while. <laughs> wow, that's really cool. Um, by the way, is there any reason why we have such good uh, footprint records but not bones? Well, it's there's a lot of lot of reasons. One is that thanks to the mountain building activity that built the Rocky Mountains and uh, all of the tectonic activity that's happened in British Columbia, we have a lot of different ages of rock exposed in British Columbia. So the more ages of rock that you have exposed, the more time periods you get to look at and the more uh, specimens you get to find from that. That is overshadowed by all of this green stuff that we see growing on the outcrops in British Columbia. It's not easy terrain to access. Uh, there's a lot of vegetation covering things. There's a lot of the areas that have the right age of rock exposed are pretty remote and there's not a lot of road access or easy access to get there. So it's a lot of bush exploration. Uh, I've clocked countless kilometers on my hiking boots. Like if hi my hiking boots last a season, that's a good pair of hiking boots because you spend hours and hours and kilometers and kilometers looking at the, looking over what rock is exposed. And just because rock is exposed doesn't mean you're going to find a fossil on it. And especially with footprints, because sometimes the lighting's wrong or the weather's wrong or the wrong part of the outcrop is exposed. So there's a lot of paleontology exploration that still needs to be done in British Columbia to document where all of these fossil bearing exposures are. So there's still a lot of work that we have to do. Maybe in a few million years, uh, paleontologists will be finding your um, worn out work boots. Oh, there's a, we had a flood uh, on one of our uh, excavation sites that actually washed away one of my, I love these hiking boots and I can never find them again, but they washed away one boot. So whoever finds that boot, I bet you that boot will still be functional in a million years. So I guess you've just answered my next question, which is um, how often do you get out into the field? Oh, as much as I can, really. It's, uh, I'm definitely, I do a lot of lab work and most of the research that I did for my degrees was all collections based, like working out of museum collections. But the uh, other half of me is definitely a field paleontologist. So that's, that's where I feel most at home, e either in a dark collections room with a bunch of uh, fossils or out in the boonies <laughs> where um, it's pretty much me and my weirdness. Um, we do haven't been out in the field as much with just kind of how odd the situation is now and the way that work is but uh, any chance that you know I can get out into the field that's that's where the fun stuff happens that's what and that's where discoveries are made discoveries are either made in 
the collections in a backlog that some poor museum hasn't had the resources in the past to deal with, or it's made out in the field. And so those are the two really exciting places for me. Has anything really strange or exciting happened to you out in the field? Oh God, how much time do you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we've had, when you're out in the field and when you're basically living out in the wilds, things happen and uh, it's unpredictable things that happen and uh, you, you can't know what's going to happen until it does. But I have two particular stories that stand out for me. So in uh, August 2019, uh, my colleague uh, Dr. McRae and I were doing the uh, collecting film footage in a Alpine Cirque in northeastern BC for the uh, BD Biodiversity Museums project. And uh, it was looking at uh, Triassic age fossils, because that's another big resource that the British Columbia has are these marine reptile and fossil fish fossils. And the scenery is beautiful and it just, it makes perfect landscape to actually teach people about uh, paleontology. So Rich and I were eating breakfast in the morning as we got helicoptered in, dropped off for a few days, and then, you know, the helicopter takes off, and we're just basically there, living out of our tents and backpacks, which is, you know, that's, that's the kind of field work we do. And I happened to drop a cranberry while I was filling my trail mix for the day, and Rich made a joke saying, oh, because we're in, we're in bear country, and we're in grizzly bear country. And he made a joke saying, all right, you drop that cranberry, that's not only going to bring a bear, that's going to bring a whole phalanx of grizzly bears. They're going to come and storm camp just because you dropped this cranberry. And so, you know, we laugh and I pick up the cranberry. It's all good. We put in several kilometers that day doing a uh, footage. And we're at the top of the cirque and there's a rocky scree slope that we have to walk down and at the base of the scree slope are some conifer trees those spruce trees and things like that and then a little bit off to the right maybe 300 meters away from that is our camp we can sort of see camp from where we are standing on top of the hill and we're sitting at the top of the cirque having a snack before we head down and i happen to look down because i see some movement at the edge of the trees and it's a big brown thing and pull up my binoculars sure enough it's a large grizzly bear and then there was a second large grizzly bear and a third large grizzly bear and a fourth large <laughs> grizzly bear all walking towards our camp i'm like oh rich you have to see this so he looks at it and he's like rats they're going towards camp and we we can't physically see our tents from where we are so we have no idea if they're going to investigate our tents or anything else and yeah you know, we do the responsible thing and keep garbage away from our site and keep it concealed in that but if you're an odd smelling primate in a grizzly bear's territory they're probably going to be curious and come to check you out and we're thinking, oh, the bears, there's four very large grizzly bears, a mom and three adult cubs, cubs that are getting ready to uh, uh, be on their own. Between us and camp, it's the end of the day. 
The temperatures are getting down to below freezing at night because it's up at a fairly high elevation. What are we going to do? So first we set off a bear banger just to let the bears know we're in the area. Maybe you want to just kind of move on and be somewhere else. And they do move on, but we lose sight of them in the trees. So we have no idea where they are at the base of the, at the trees, at the base of this hill that we have to walk down. So they could be, you know, for all we know, just waiting there for us, which, you know, bears don't think like that. But eh, when you're out in the woods, you kind of have to think like they think like that. And so we hike down a little ways, always keeping an eye on that edge of the uh, conifer patch. And Rich brings out his drone. He has a, a backpack drone and a large drone, and we were working with the backpack drone that day. We decided to do a drone reconnaissance of our camp just to see if everything was still intact, because we had the big drone still in camp, and we didn't want the grizzlies to, you know, maybe play soccer with it while we were gone, because that's an expensive bit of machinery. And so we send, send the drone out, and we, you know, fly around camp. Camp is okay. We fly at a decent height over the conifer, the patch of conifers, to see if we can see the grizzlies in there. We can't see anything because the vegetation is just too dense. Then it starts to get really windy. Then it starts to rain. Then it starts to snow. And then it starts hailing on us. And we're like, ah, oh, you know, you never ask the question, what else could go wrong when you're out in the field? Because inevitably, someone answers you. <laughs> so, so after that little squall happened, everything's wet and slippery and it's cold. And we're like, well, we can't stay up here all night. That's impossible. So we just say, to heck with it. And walk down the cirque, walk along the base of the woods, and get back to camp. And we scout around camp to see if there's any traces of the grizzly activity. And sure enough, we see fresh footprints walking along the turn, the little glacial lake that was next to where we were camping. And it's like we, and we had checked out that area before and the only footprints we had found were uh, bighorn sheep footprints. So we were like, okay, grizzlies aren't active in this area right now, but they sure were active that day. <laughs> uh, so that's, that's, yeah, that's the most recent hair raising story that we've had from the field. There's so many aspects to that story. Um, oh God! Yeah, not at all what you expect for a paleontology field story. That's it, when you're doing I, every paleontologist, depending on what kind of ecosystem they're working in, they have a similar wildlife story of you know either it's a rattlesnake that parks itself on a fossil they want to look at and doesn't move, or if you're up in grizzly country and you're living in grizzly territory yeah you're gonna you're gonna have a bear encounter one of these years that was actually the only the only second time that we've had a very close encounter with a bear in the field usually we're pretty uh we've had a pretty good track record in avoiding them but yeah. and in this case it, i would say this turned out pretty well too we avoided contact with the grizzlies so <laughs> everything worked out well for both of us <laughs> And hopefully you, you avoid them in the future, too. <laughs> oh, exactly. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, you know, you, there's ways to be bear smart when wildlife smart when you're out in the field. And, uh, you know, you do your best to remember that, you know, this isn't your place. This is 
their place and uh, they're there they live there all the time and you're just visiting so you have to be aware of that when you walk into these wilderness situations it's, uh, and you know if you encounter wildlife it's not out to get you it's just you happen to encounter it and so it's like okay let's make sure we handle this so that both you and the wildlife never have to see each other again and everyone's safe and happy you said you had another story oh god yeah this one was human error related thankfully so <laughs> and these are always the good ones like there's a hashtag on social media that's uh, called fieldwork fail and this is a whole series of fieldwork fails it's like a series of unfortunate events with one field trip it's, it's amazing so we're uh a colleague uh rich he's uh off doing some uh, consulting work in another country um, in, in September. And I get this email from someone who says, he's a guide outfitter, uh, his name was Aaron Fredland. He says, okay, I found these large, what looked like meat-eating dinosaur footprints in this rock, in this area that I was doing some uh, uh, guiding work for. And he sends me a picture and yeah, sure enough, you know, you can usually trust your guide outfitters to correctly identify the broad category of animal that you're dealing with. And it's like, oh yeah, these are definitely meat-eating dinosaurs. I check on the geologic map shows that it's late Cretaceous rocks that these large meat-eating dinosaur footprints are in and it's a trackway. And there was one footprint that he found and another footprint that he uncovered. And based on the size and the shape of these footprints, we were looking at Tyrannosaur footprints. So something around the size of Albertosaurus or Gorgosaurus. And Tyrannosaur footprints are a big deal because up until then, all of the Tyrannosaur footprints that had been found had been singletons, just isolated footprints. There had never been a Tyrannosaur trackway found, like a left, right, left, right sequence. So, when you don't have a trackway, it's hard to tell from the footprints how the animal's moving its body to make those footprints, how it's walking, because a trackway is a physical record of an animal moving and interacting with its environment. And we just didn't have that with Tyrannosaurus. So it's like, holy crow, ah, Tyrannosaur trackway. My colleague gets back in end of, uh, around in October and, uh, we find out that the guide outfitter isn't going to be around, but he tells a volunteer where the site is so that the volunteer, when they have time off, can take us out to the site. Because apparently GPS, uh, getting GPS data at this area, it wasn't really good coverage and it's kind of a treacherous path to get to the site. It's, it's a pretty dangerous path, actually. It's uh, on a decommissioned logging road, so it's just, you can't just drive to it. It's full of pitfalls and burnt out log piles. It's just really treacherous. And so we set a date with the volunteer to go out to the site, and it was going to be on a Sunday. And so we're, we spend most of the week prepping for making a silicone replica of the trackway, because we knew it was too big to cut it, physically cut it out of the rock, and we don't like to usually do that anyway. It's better to take a replica back and then you can manipulate it and do all the studies that you need to do with it. And silicone makes excellent, excellent replicas. We were a little bit worried too because 
it was October in northeastern British Columbia, and temperatures were getting down to zero at night, if not more. There was ice crystals forming on puddles on this track site. So it was chilly. So we knew we were taking a risk using silicone because silicone needs a certain temperature to set up at. It's a chemical reaction. And so we brought heaters for the silicone and tarps and that. We're going to make a nice little heated tent, which we did. And that all worked out fine. But we get a call the morning on Saturday. It's from the volunteers saying, my schedule's changed. We have to leave now. We had packed all of our field gear, like what we needed to do to document and study and replicate this track. But we hadn't packed any of our personal gear, like flashlights and food and things like that. So we make, we scramble within an hour to get all of our gear. We did bring flashlights and this becomes important later. And we drive out to the site. So by the time we get to the site, it's about noon. So a lot of the day is already gone. And sunlight starts to leave these areas around 4.30, uh, up, you know, up around October. So we just push it to get this track site cleaned off, uncover a third footprint, get silicone mix. And I was mixing everything by hand, and it was stiff and cold. And I actually have uh, tendonitis in my the thumb of my right hand now from that that will uh, act up now <laughs> and this was back in 2011 so uh, yeah that's that's the uh, that's the one I took for the team on that one and I was just a mess of just gloppy unset up silicone just frantically mixing this stuff 430 rolls around our volunteer has to take off so we're like okay that's no big deal we have our uh, ATV that we had used our all-terrain vehicle that we'd used to carry equipment to the site and we thought we had flashlights we thought we had flashlights so by the time we're done setting up the peel to harden it was about six in the evening it's dark and we all open up our backpacks and lo and behold not one of us had a flashlight they were sitting in the truck on the back seat because we put them there thinking, all right, we'll throw these in right before we get down. So we're like, oh dear, well, it's dark. We're not navigating. We can't make it back up this hill and walk along this horrible, horrible route to get back to the truck. Thankfully, we had planned for something like this. We'd mapped out on Google Earth a route with, uh, along an old, an old seismic cut line that uh, usually these things are pretty flat and cleared of trees and they're pretty easy to navigate with an ATV. It's like, okay, we can just follow this cut line in the ATV and circle back and get to the vehicle at the top of the hill. We travel, oh, maybe three kilometers along this cut line and then it slopes down and it should have sloped back up again, but where it upsloped, right in the valley of this uh, dip, a beaver had built a dam and it was all flooded and there was no way we were getting through that to get up. We could see the cut line right there going, oh, if only you could make it to us, you'd be home. And so we could just stare there going, no, we can't get around this beaver dam. It was a big beaver dam. I was a little angry at beavers that evening. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> and 
we circle back to the track site and we're like well okay we have our satellite phone by this time it's around nine o'clock at night because it's slow going on this terrain yeah everything happens slowly when you're trying to navigate these uh, treacherous treacherous paths it's like okay we're not making it home tonight we're gonna wait until it's light and then we will head out now we were minimally prepared we had the capacity to make fire so that was a bonus we could make a fire to keep ourselves warm we had a couple of guide tarps with us so we could cover ourselves with tarps if there was going to be any bad weather so we open up the satellite phone we call our contact people and right as i was saying we can't make it out of the field tonight and i was going to say but don't worry we'll be there in the morning we're just going to wait for light satellite reception is lost and i can't reconnect for the rest of the evening what good are you yelling at the phone <laughs> and so all people heard was me saying we can't make it out of the field <laughs> and so we're like uh, all right here we go so we make up our rudimentary camp and uh, we have our backs to the atv and we have our tarps over us and we're doing all right for a couple of hours and then the wind picks up it's all sub-zero wind and it's cold and it's just sucking the heat right out of us because we didn't have a thermarest pad or anything like that we weren't planning on being overnight we're like well this sucks and we move our little camp to inside the woods we make this big nest of leaves for insulation and we burrow under the leaves and throw the guide tarp over us and we made a little fire next to it and i fell asleep i was comfortable i was happy to sleep the night through and then at about four in the morning we hear this ruckus the volunteer comes back with another volunteer and their dog to come and rescue us because they thought we were calling for help and my first thought when i woke up i was annoyed because they woke me up <laughs> and you know and i couldn't be annoyed because you know they were coming to save us and uh and, you know, so that was good. And we made it, you know, we, it was a bit of a picky hike to get through in the very dim, dim light that was starting to uh, uh, come up. But uh, yeah, that was a, uh, and of course, you know, we're, it's about six in the morning by the time we make it back to the truck, open up the truck. What's staring at us? The bloody flashlight. <laughs> oh, the words that were said. Oh. <laughs> It's amazing that between your two stories, the beaver is actually um, a bigger hassle than the bear. <laughs> the beaver was, yeah, I would, I would have encountered, yeah, the only thing that would have uh, made that story complete was if a bear decided to try and share camp with us. That would have, uh, that would have been good. But yeah, the beaver was the enemy in this story. <laughs> and poor planning on, you know, many parts. But, but the beaver, we're going to blame the beaver on this one. Um, so your research sounds really interesting. Uh, what kinds of like real world applications does it have? Well, it's anytime you're studying something like natural history, the history of your planet, and like how uh, plants and animals appear, how they flourish, how they exist on the planet, and then how they go extinct. And this is a study of how ecosystems respond to long-term changes on our planet. And this is, vital 
to understanding how our planet actually works. This is our baseline. Like every scientific experiment needs a control group. The, our fossil record is the control group for this big experiment that we call life on Earth. Because this is what life does when those pesky humans aren't on the planet <laughs> doing what they do. And, uh, you know, not that we're not a natural part of the environment, but we're more industrious than those beavers that uh, <laughs> blocked off our uh, environment. And we make great impacts on the environment. So natural history forms our baseline, and by understanding life of the past, only by understanding that, are we going to know how the actions of our species are going to impact life of the future? So we have to know where we came from to understand where we're going. And every study on fossils adds more information to our control groups. So every paleontologist out there is a little piece of that big puzzle that's helping us understand our planet that much better. That's a really great way of making paleontology relevant to today. Um, that is such a big thing that we're talking about uh, these days. Oh, it is. And it's, and it's not, the, and you can't just treat what's happening today as, it, it's not an isolated phenomenon. You have to put it into context of what's hap what has happened on the planet before. And that's how we know that big things, big changes, big impacts are being made on our environment and on our climate. That's where we get our baseline data from. I mean, that's core samples from uh, large glaciers. That's, uh, that's one of the big things that pops into mind when I think about you know, studying paleo environments and looking at isotope studies. It's like, yeah, this is recorded environment right in those core samples. And that's telling us yeah, those big changes that you hear those scientists talking about in our climate, yeah, they're not making that stuff up. That's based on what we've been seeing previously when the planet's been at a similar configuration and a similar, you know, continental makeup and a similar environment, base environment. That's like, we, you know, this is data that we do understand. This isn't all speculation and pokey pokey and whatnot. This is based on, this is based on hard stuff, man. <laughs> uh, speaking of major impacts, uh, how has the COVID-19 outbreak affected your work? Well, it definitely has had an impact. Uh, paleo, paleontology surveys and consulting contracts that were pending before the uh, COVID was treated like a big deal, uh, they've been indefinitely delayed for us. And uh, we have really no indication at this point in time if these contracts are going to be picked up again or resumed after governments decide, you know, that work. So it's a little bit, especially for contract workers right now, it, it's a bit of a hairy time because you don't expect, you don't work into your plan a global pandemic scenario. You just don't until it happens and you're like, oh, yeah, okay. Uh, thankfully, some uh, current projects that uh, have in progress uh, on the uh, South Korea bird footprint, that is in the writing and analysis stage at this point. So uh, that project can be wrapped up and, and written and submitted uh, regardless 
of the pandemic, any follow-up studies or return visits to the field sites, those are going to have to be put on hold until uh, we figure out what's, you know, what, what's going on with the uh, pandemic situation. Um, so that's, you just roll with the punches with that. Field work is unpredictable on its best days, so it's going to be extremely unpredictable when you're dealing with a global crisis. Science communication, however, that's something that is completely digital, at least in the delivery of it. So uh, the uh, science communication project that I work on with uh, Bird Glamour has continued more or less uninterrupted. So, so that's good. And uh, for people who aren't familiar with Bird Glamour, that uh, I take everyday cosmetics, I put them on my face, in the patterns and colors of our birds and on some fossil organisms as well. We'll be doing more of those. And I use it as a conversation starter to get people interested in the world around them and particularly birds because I'm a huge bird nerd, I'm not gonna lie. <laughs> and your, so, your bird glamours are stunning. Oh, thank you. Oh, I love getting feedback. <laughs> Yeah, so it's it's been a little difficult to get to natural areas like wildlife areas uh, for photography and filming because particularly BC parks because right now they're they're shut down. People are not supposed to be going into BC parks because of COVID. So it makes it a little more difficult to get to these wilderness areas to do uh, filming. So you're left with public areas like city parks and things like that, but you don't want to be violating any social distancing uh, recommendations when you're out doing these kinds of projects. So it's been a little tricky to find locations at this point to uh, do shoots, but now yeah, we're, 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 we're working with it. You just have to be creative. <laughs> well, um, Lisa, it's been a pleasure chatting with you this afternoon. Um, oh, wonderful. You've had some amazing stories and you're really inspiring. Uh, thanks oh. for sharing your knowledge with us. Oh, and thanks for thanks for chatting with me. This was wonderful. This is this is a great program. Okay, uh, so I'm gonna say goodbye and stay safe. All right. Um. Yeah. Stay safe. You to you and uh, yeah. Maybe we'll be in touch with some future projects. Absolutely. All right. Sounds great. <laughs>